This is the RV8 podcast. Uh, normally, I tend to name the number of the episodes that I do, but I've officially lost count. I will order it as precisely as I can, but for now, I will just say that I'm glad that you're listening, and I want to send a special shout-out to Craig and Allison Snook. I don't really know you, Allison, very well, but I do know your husband. And once upon a time, your husband told me that I was going to move to this city and become uh, nothing. I believe jack shit was his direct quote. Um, I know that he was just ragging on me, but, you know, I know he's not a detractor, say. It's just, you know, boys being boys. So far, Craig, you're absolutely right. <laughs> Nothing's happened yet, but eventually you will be wrong. Now I'll throw it in your face. I'll spike it in your face. And uh, I can't wait for that day. I hope you're doing well, sir. My name is Eli. Thank you for listening. Let's get started. And here we go. So... Here we are leading up to the holiday season. Christmas is around the corner. Wonder Woman 1984 is about to come out, and the worst year of film on record is going to be fucking over. I can only imagine that 2021 isn't going to start off like this past year did as far as theatrical releases are concerned. I mean, I just found out today that award season has been significantly delayed. Like, the Oscars are going to be at the end of fucking April, which is just the most bizarre thing in the world, considering how much I tend to be engulfed in award season around this time. I mean, for me, usually it is award season that balances me, you know? I'm not really a tentpole guy nor an art house guy. I'm somewhere in the middle. Award season satisfies me in that way. I can be seen bouncing from Century City to Arc Light to TCL. Seeing these types of movies during this time, I'm usually a pinball in that way. There's no positive way to speak of cinema in 2020. I mean, there are a lot of good things that have come out, but for the most part, they tend to feel like made-for-television movies, given the fact that they're on the internet. I mean, I know that may seem unfair, but... Because of that dynamic, I haven't seen, I have not seen a lot of the top films of 2020 when it comes to these top 10 lists, man. I have no idea what my personal top 10 is in any particular category that would be presented at an award show, like more or less overall for the year. Like I look at other people's top 10s and I don't even see movies I identify with. The films that I've seen in 2020 that actually came out this year that are actually being talked about right now. I mean, the five bloods onward, the assistant, I mean, another round, uh, soul. I mean, it, 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 it just trails off from there. You know what I mean? But Hey, wonder woman comes out on Christmas. And even though I'm going to see it on the laptop, I'm going to be just as happy seeing it on the laptop as, I would be in a theater. 
retrospectively to go over 2020 in a year of cinema would be so devastating to me right now. I just can't help but to think, gosh, what was the best overall year of cinema in the last decade? I mean, why not cover that? Why not do that to ease my mind of the bullshit of this past year? For a long time, I thought it was 2011. That was the best year for independent film. But nope. it's not enough to count as the best. I mean, perhaps it was 2010. Like That was an incredible award season. And possibly the best year for animated film of the entire decade. But nope. it's not that either. 2014 was the best foreign language film year with movies like Timbuktu and Force Majeure and Tokyo Ghoul and Salt of the Earth. Also the best action film of the entire decade, a movie called The Raid Part 2. But the blockbusters, man, those, those real heavy ones, those real expensive movies were subpar, if not awful, so no. I do think, when it's all said and done, that 2018 was the superior year to the rest. There are a number of things that contribute to this reasoning, of course, and what was most notable to me in 2018 were the blockbusters. In just trying to figure out what the determining factors on what makes a movie year spectacular, at the head of it all has to be your blockbusters. You can have everything else be nice, but you gotta have some paint on the outside of the house that makes the house pop. And that usually is what the blockbusters signify, as opposed to the art house movies, as opposed to foreign language or animated films. The real tent poles are what shine. Though it seems strange to say, it's not exactly guaranteed that a calendar year of film is going to give you some quality fucking tentpole level blockbusters. Sometimes you can get a legitimately bad year. 2011 and 2013, though they were good years, had a small share of blockbusters that were pretty good, but when you look at the entire roster of films released in that year, the collection of blockbusters is extremely lackluster. And, you know, in some cases, repetitive. 2016 was the most prolific year for the animated blockbusters. I mean, by a lot. And and sure, there was a lot to love if you just so happen to be an adult who likes watching animated films, such as I. But otherwise, lukewarm year. As it will be mentioned later on in this episode, 2010 came very, very close to being the best year of the decade in terms of film releases. But on the blockbuster front, I think it paled in comparison to 2018. Because of an Oscar season, a lot of people tend to think that movies like Avatar and Blindside and Sherlock Holmes count towards 2010 because that's where the majority of their box office clout came from. But I'm going by release dates, and I don't. There are two major factors as to why 2010 was inferior to 2018. And one was the summer slate of tentpoles. The entire slate of 2010 was awful in the month of May. Awful. That Russell Crowe Robin Hood bullshit. Alice in Wonderland, which I guess was meh. And the sequels to both Iron Man and Sex in the City, both of which were poorly received. The summer also brought you, what, Jonah Hex? Uh, Splice? Um, Night and Day? Grown Ups? 
what I believe was the third Twilight movie, which was Eclipse, and The Last Airbender. Like, that was the summer slate. The really good stuff was few and far between those. 2018 is a slate more impressive than I cared to realize, largely because of how many sequels there were that ranged from fine to great. In the eight-year gap between the two years that I'm speaking of, the, the spring season proved to be very profitable within itself. In 2018, spring movies like Ready Player One and Blockers and Tomb Raider and Pacific Rim were released, and in 2010, possibly every single one of those movies would more than likely be in June or July. And that's not even counting Infinity War, which came out in 25th of April and dominated the first 10 days of May, if not the entire summer. I mean, look, I don't... I, I, I talk so much about the MCU on this podcast, and I've went into detail on both Black Panther, which was released in February of 2018, and Infinity War, which was released in April... I do feel for now it's important to speak about the rest of the summer slate, which has gone vastly unappreciated because of how colossal both those movies were. The sequel to Deadpool was technically the first major release of the summer. A film that was almost just as funny as the original, in my opinion. And then to close the month of May, we had Solo, a Star Wars story. And I've gone into detail in the previous episode about this movie as well, but I'll just reiterate this. Given the way The Mandalorian is presented and how people have responded to it, there is a solid argument to be made about Solo being the best Star Wars movie released in the past decade. June was a month filled with huge anticipated sequels. The Jurassic World sequel, Ocean's 8, which was a sequel of sorts, um, the sequel to Sicario, and one of the most anticipated sequels of all time, quite possibly, in The Incredibles 2. Oh, no. Cookies. I gotta get cookies. You do not need cookies, as I learned quite painfully last night. Any solution involving cookies will inevitably result in the demon baby. It means fire, Robert. For which the suit has countermeasures. I suggest you extinguish the baby's flames before he trips the sprinkler system. July also bought you a number of sequels with Ant-Man and the Wasp, uh, Mamba Mia, Here We Go Again, and uh, Hotel Transylvania 3, all of which made a lot more money than I remember them making. July 2018 also brought you Mission Impossible Fallout, a film which I think to this day is the best entry of that franchise, 22 years after the debut of the original, and one of the best action movies of the last 10 years. <laughs> For. I'm jumping out a window! What do you mean you're jumping out of a... Oh, sorry, I had it in 2D. Good luck. Warner Brothers was on fire during the month of August, having $200 million movies released within five days of each other. The Meg was one of those movies somehow, starring Jason Statham in a very schlocky movie that looks like it's looks like it should be on the sci-fi channel for all i know i say that endearingly by the way um and then the second film was crazy rich asians a film adaptation of a very popular book that caught on like fucking wildfire 
and became a blockbuster making stars out of almost everybody in that cast. Constance Wu and Aquafina and and Golding. I don't know when you would have heard of them outside of that. Papa, can we go trampoline? You haven't finished your nuggets yet, sweetie. Okay, there's a lot of children starving in America, right? I mean, take a look at her. She's American, huh? Really skinny. You want to look like that? No. Then eat your nuggets. September was a cold month, admittingly, but October was no joke. October started off with both Venom and A Star Is Born coming out on the same fucking day and raking in cash until Thanksgiving. The Halloween remake, which I despise, came in on the 19th of October and completely dominated the Halloween season, of course, right? Though I despise that movie, it made a ton of money, and there are people who fucking love it. So I gotta acknowledge it. Not even a week after Halloween, though, Bohemian Rhapsody comes out. Okay, a week after that, Christmas movies go into full swing and they had that Dr. Seuss film, that animated one. The Thanksgiving slate of blockbusters really didn't disappoint either. I mean, you had the sequels to both Creed and Fantastic Beasts and Wreck-It Ralph. The sequels to those movies, not the movies themselves. Award season was in full swing as it always is during the month of December, but the blockbusters didn't necessarily stop, you know? You had that musical sequel, of sorts to Mary Poppins with Lin-Manuel Miranda. You had the prequel to the Transformers sequel, uh, the prequel to the Transformers series, sorry, in uh, Bumblebee. And that movie was way better than it had any right to be given the overall shittiness of that franchise. You actually had a DCEU movie that was not only good, but rewatchable in Aquaman. Aquaman of all things. Oh yeah, and quite possibly, one of the greatest animated movies of all time was released in December, and that movie, by God, was called Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Are you a ghost? No. Are you a zombie? Stop it. Am I a zombie? You're not even close. Are you from another dimension? Like a parallel universe where things are like this universe but different? And, and you're Spider-Man in that universe, but somehow travel to this universe, but, but you don't know how? Wow, that was really just a guess? The greatness of the films I previously mentioned are not really the thing that make the year of tentpoles great. It's just consistency man more often than not i find that audiences tend to go for long periods of time during the summer season building up anticipation for one thing that's going to come out and then for the rest of the films surrounding that one thing they tend to be moderately interested in him 2018 had something for everybody and decent to good films were coming out at a more consistent basis than normal this episode is brought to you by Boss of CMOS, the number one CMOS brand in Washington State. So what are the benefits of Irish CMOS? Often touted as a superfood, proponents of this algae claim it can strengthen immunity, improve digestion, and even produce glowing skin over time. Irish moss alone contains 92 of the 102 minerals that our bodies need in order to thrive. Boss of Sea Moss is a brand that incorporates Irish sea moss into things like face mask gels and bath bombs. They also have lemonades both in the original flavor and a new strawberry lemonade, as well as two original blends that you can put into smoothies of your own. The original 92 mineral formula and the herbal blend with all 102 minerals support black owned businesses. 
check out Boss of CMOS at their website, bossofcmos.com. Again, that's bossofcmos, S-E-A-M-O-S-S dot com. All one word, by the way. To me, a truly definitive career performance comes to those who already have an established resume, and they pull off something so magnificent that it has to be mentioned first and foremost when discussing that person's career. Career defining performances have been sprinkled throughout the decade, right? Uh, Jesse Eisenberg was in the social network in 2010. Um, Emily Blunt was in Edge of Tomorrow. Uh, Mahershala Ali was in Moonlight in 2016. Uh, Sally Hawkins was in The Shape of Water, 2017. Chiwetel Ejiofor was in 12 Years a Slave in 2013. Or someone like, you know, Brie Larson playing Captain Marvel in 2019, even though she won the Oscar, I think it was four years before that. It's the performance that's always mentioned first when you talk about the actors, the thing that people associate you with, even though they don't know your name, and if you have to show them a picture of your face. There are only a handful of performances like that throughout the decade, but when you really truly think about it, 2018 had four of them. Well, three and a half, technically speaking. The first one to me, undoubtedly, is Josh Brolin. Before 2018, Josh Brolin was the most noted character of the Goonies, it seemed. Him and Sean Austin way back in the day. He's been a character actor for the most part. I mean, he got nominated for an Oscar in 2008 for his performance in Milk. And he was the leading role in the best picture of 2007, No Country for Old Men. But 20 years from now, when we are discussing the legacy of Josh Brolin, the conversation will always start with Thanos. Always. When it comes to cinematic villainy, Thanos is to this decade what Darth Vader was to the 70s, what the Terminator was to the 80s, what Hannibal Lecter was to the 90s, and what Heath Ledger's Joker was to the 2000s. Yes, he may have been covered in CGI, and his face was barely recognizable, but that voice, though, his common speaking voice, is instantaneously identifiable. This universe is finite, its resources finite. If life is left unchecked, life will cease to exist. It needs correction. You don't know that! I'm the only one who knows that. At least I'm the only one with the will to act on it. Another one is Michael B. Jordan. I mean, one can argue that you can point to virtually any leading character in Black Panther and say that his role or her role as that particular actor's defining performance, given the historical relevancy of the film itself. But that wouldn't really be true, right? I mean, Chadwick Boseman played many historical figures before this film, as did Angela Bassett, as did Forrest Whitaker. I mean, Lupita Nyong'o may have had the best resume for any actor throughout the past 10 years, but I don't think her role here is mentioned first overall by any means. Michael B. Jordan, though, has been around for a very long time. He played Wallace in The Wire. He was on TV shows like All My Children and Parenthood and Friday Night Lights. One would argue that Creed might be his definitive performance, but that's also a lie. Creed made him a sex symbol. Creed did for him what Thelma and Louise did for Brad Pitt. 
or what Transformers did for Megan Fox. He has a good resume with notable things, uh, but nothing is even remotely close to being as revered for him as Eric Killmonger. We got spies embedded in every nation on Earth, already in place. I know how colonizers think, so we're going to use their own strategy against them. We're going to send vibranium weapons out to our war dogs. They'll arm oppressed people all over the world so they can finally rise up and kill those in power and their children and anyone else who takes their side. It's time they know the truth about us. We're warriors. The world's going to start over, and this time we're on top. John David Washington is the son of the super iconic, legendary black sovereign known as Denzel Washington. John David was on a show called Ballers for six seasons, and he's pretty good on that show. I, I do recall there was a period of time when that show debuted that people were flat out, you know, doing the whole nepotism bullshit about how he got to be on a show so quickly. In 2018, John David Washington got a Golden Globe nomination for his performance in a movie called Black Klansman, one of the very best movies of this year. You've been passing for a wasp. White Anglo-Saxon Protestant, cherry pie hot dog white boy. That's what some light-skinned black folks do. They pass for white. Doesn't that hatred you've been hearing the Klan say, doesn't that piss you off? Of course it does. Then why are you acting like you ain't got skin in the game, brother? Rookie, that's my fucking business. It's our business. I did mention that there were two and a half, sorry, three and a half iconic performances. And I guess I got to give that half iconic performance to Lady Gaga, right? Like, I'll, 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 I'll admit that I am a Lady Gaga fan. Now, I wouldn't call myself a, a little monster or, or whatever she calls her fan base, but I've taken notice of her career for quite some time. And if you so happen to listen to this and you are also a Lady Gaga fan, ask yourself this. What is her most famous song? Just Dance? Telephone? Poker Face? Bad Romance? I mean, Born This Way, maybe. Uh, paparazzi, like Alejandro, just none of these, okay? Up to the year of 2018, Lady Gaga won six Grammys, fuck ton of records, sold. Uh, she did this, the Super Bowl halftime show, and, and she actually won a Golden Globe for American Horror Story. And to understand how amazing she is, she accomplished all of that before what I believe her biggest hit is, which also happened to be the biggest song to come from any movie this decade, and I'm very much including the James Bond theme songs. There are very few songs throughout the entire decade that I can think of that were as massive as Shallow. I'm off the deep end, watch as I dive in. I Anyway, this song is not why we know Lady Gaga. It's not. But 10 years from now, this will be one of those two or three songs that you mention when referencing her catalog. And that's fucking saying something. I'd also like to point out what I consider to be the most important award season of the decade and quite possibly the most important of all time. In 2018, a, a robbery happened, let's just say. What I consider to be a true Oscar robbery. Like, 
to me, an Oscar robbery isn't something that happens when an upset occurs, like when Remy Malik won the Oscar against Christian Bale. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's simply an upset. I know a lot of people get all in their feelings about Remy Malik having an Oscar for a movie that wasn't worth that type of attention, but he was. He was great. People act as if the quality of Remy Malik's performance as Freddie Mercury in Bohemian Rhapsody was completely based off of him perhaps trying to sing Queen songs to go along with whatever else he did in the film. That's not true. He was completely worthy of the award. You know why? Because we don't really want Remy Malik trying to sing like fucking Freddie Mercury, do we? Nope. I mean, sure, Kristen Stewart sang those songs and The Runaways and Val Kilmer sang those Jim Morrison songs and Doors. Lawrence Fishburne really sang those Ike Turner songs and What's Love Got to Do With It. And yeah, you know, most notably, I guess Joaquin Phoenix and Reese Witherspoon did sing those songs and Walk the Line. But, and I mean this with all due respect to every single artist that those biopics were based upon, none of those dudes and women sang like Freddie Mercury. And it just seemed like people were thirsting for the Remy Malik renditions instead of the Freddie Mercury ones to drag this movie into the mud more than it already was in. It's been, you know, monumental meeting those guys. They actually watched that recording. They were sent So you that... had to sing as Freddie Mercury in front of the other members of Queen. Well, they were sent a tape of it. I ended up watching them watch me for the first time in between the, you know, oh they're watching the best friend. Yeah, it was like... No pressure. No pressure. Well, how did they take you? They took me. <laughs> Very rare, is it, that the stars align to the point where you get, like, a Grammy Award-winning singer like Jamie Foxx to play Ray Charles or Jennifer Hudson, who's going to play Aretha Franklin pretty soon? I mean... Lawrence Olivier once pointed out that, hey, this is called acting, by the way. And sometimes you got to fucking lip sync if you can't sing. To me, something that qualifies as a true Oscar robbery and not an upset like that one is something so left field, so egregious, so incomprehensibly stupid that it makes the entire Academy look foolish decades after the fact. And the Oscar goes to... Green Book. Ooh, yeah. Um, I'm going to have to go ahead and sort of disagree with you there. Like when, when Francis Ford Coppola was nominated for Best Director for The Godfather and lost to Bob Fosse for Cabaret, a movie nobody cares about. What? When Martin Scorsese got nominated for Goodfellas and lost to Kevin Costner for Dances with Wolves. What? When Samuel L. Jackson got nominated for Pulp Fiction and lost to Martin Landau for Ed Wood. What? When Tom Hanks got nominated for Private Ryan and Edward Norton got nominated for American History X in the same category, in the same year, and lost to Roberto Benigni for Life is Beautiful. Uh, what the hell? And then, most notably, that same year, Saving Private Ryan got nominated for Best Picture and lost to Shakespeare in fucking love. What? Bro, what are you talking about, man? Well, in 2018, there was a movie called Green Book. 
And that that movie had all the negative press going into award season. Given the fact that even some of its stars seemed uncomfortable talking about the film at length. Given the fact that Green Book winning the best comedy at the Golden Globes itself got backlash. The fact that Green Book beat films that may be... Let's see here. I don't know. Maybe he, he Green Book beat a top five Spike Lee film, a the best movie that Adam McKay has ever done, and the best movie of Yargos Lorenzos' life that he'll probably ever do. Alfonso Cuaron won Best Director and lost Best Picture to this. And you know, Black Panther was there. And I, you know, maybe it deserved to be there, maybe it didn't, but it was. And you choose the the Driving Miss Daisy remix instead of any of those. It really derailed the good spirit of that entire award ceremony, man. And it's a real shame, because otherwise it was pretty damn nice. I got to see Spike Lee win an Oscar and give a speech before either I died or he died. And to me personally, that's enough to make any Oscars telecast good. The only way to ruin a moment like that is to do what they did with a film like this, and they did it. Such a shame. The 2018 award season was not great, but it was important. More than any other year, it pointed out that the flawed thinking of the Academy was still present. It's become a year that people can point to when giving a reason as to why the ratings may be down and the overall opinion of the award show itself is the lowest that it's ever been. It's a year that we can look back on when something like Parasite, right, wins the Oscar for Best Picture, amongst, you know, other things, and we can say that the Academy has evolved from what it used to be. Sometimes being important is better than being good. And in the case of the 2018 award season... That is definitely the case. And finally, I wanted to talk about a film called Bird Box. To me, Bird Box is one of the more notable movies of the entire decade, more or less the year of 2018. I did a past episode about horror films, and the impact of Bird Box requires a lengthy but important observation. You see, in in, in December of 2017, there was this movie called Bright, And Bright was a science fiction film starring Will Smith, starring Joel Edgerton, and it was noted for being by far the most tentpole-looking film that ever came from Netflix, right? It really, really passed off as something that a big studio can do. And although Netflix had been doing original content movie-wise since 2015, it always had like a small-time independent if not art house kind of feel like that first film was a uh, beast of no nation and that was a staple of the awards se- uh the award season that it was released and, and nobody really made like a fuss about it i pick entertainment signed an exclusive deal to show netflix films on the big screen quite possibly with the entire point being award season recognition in 2016 all the way back in 2016. And I don't remember anybody really making a fuss about it, but when Bright came out, people started conversing about Netflix attempting this evolution into major blockbusters. Conversation which was really, um, let's just say it was uneasy for the film purists and traditionalists in this city, let's just say. But then Bright came out, 
and people legitimately fucking despised it. People ran the quality of the film into the ground ad nauseum, and because of the negative response to it, it just seemed as if this whole Netflix thingy passed by. The thought of it turned into um, this, like, like an assumed science experiment type stuff for Netflix to test their abilities to play with the big boys. You know what I'm saying? And then a year after that, Bird Box is released, and the ads for it flooded the billboard-laden stretch of land known as the Sunset Strip. I started seeing commercials for it on basketball games. Like, it was coming around Christmas time, and, I mean, the only movie that could really compare with it in terms of, like, advertising, at least in this city, was, like, Aquaman. You know what I mean? Bird Box was released, and unlike Bright, there were tons of memes and parodies and... It became more of a social media thing. It was also polarizing. Even though people thought it was silly, um, others thought it was creative and it was really polarizing in that way. And there didn't really seem to be any gray area in that aspect. But one thing is for sure, a fuckload of people watched Bird Box. And as polarizing as it was, it was still well-received in comparison to bright and when it was all said and done bird box had that feel and the response was just like a, a normal tent pole would be you know that combined with the award season success of roma which was in the same year meant that netflix was like here they were they were they have arrived it's not an experiment anymore it wasn't some sort of a gimmick netflix was going to start making movies in a major way now and a lot of has been like chronicled about the quality of Netflix's original content. A lot of people have commented on whether the presence of Netflix is a positive thing for this business as a whole. A lot has been chronicled on how Netflix is the only place that truly gives documentaries and independent films a chance to be seen by a widespread audience. And there's been a lot of debate about the legacy. I didn't hear a lot of these debates at least in terms of the film business, happening until the fall of 2018 and the success of Bird Box. And again, whether you see it as good or bad is actually a non-compliance. It's important, important. And I myself am all for it. I mean, as a consumer, I truly believe there should be no complaints for more quality content getting a chance to shine. There's a lot of small fish in this big pond called Hollywood that before streaming services existed had very little fucking shot of getting a look. I find that people most upset about Netflix is, you know, people who haven't adapted to the idea that television is the bigger medium right now. I'm not saying that streaming services are the answer to every problem that tends to plague this business. But I will point out that the conditions in which 2020 provided us, whether you want to curse the existence of online streaming or not, you can't deny that as a serious film fan, you've needed it. You've relied on it. Not too far from the anniversary of, you know, us being locked down. Where the fuck would you be as a film fan if not for these streaming services? 
if not for what Netflix started, if not for them getting into the film game, where would you be? It's a question I've asked myself numerous times over the past 12 months. And I got to tell you, I'm starting to feel like that's the whole fucking point of why Netflix has done what they've done. In, in what the studios failed to give consumers to cinephiles like myself, at least we have streaming. And I know that sounds icky to some of y'all, but y'all know I'm right. Y'all know I'm right. You guys have to stop lying to yourselves. I live right near LA Live in downtown LA, right next to the Staples Center where they have that giant Regal Cinemas right next to the stadium. That's been boarded up since the civil unrest in the summer. The billboards have remained blank, and the screen is turned completely off. And I halfway expected that screen at some point to say something when the Lakers won the championship a couple of months ago. They play right there, right? But no. The Vista Theater on Sunset Boulevard has a very ominous, blacked-out billboard that simply says, To Be Continued on it. There are multiple old-school-style theaters that are simply wishing people to stay safe on their billboards instead of showing showtimes, and all of it is understood. I mean, the harsh reality here in L.A. is that a lot of these theaters that I normally pass by on my daily commutes are going to be hollowed out within the next six months. And I, and I can't imagine something that's used to playing independent art house type films. I, I, I can't imagine those are going to be able to keep their heads above water in a city like this. I mean, none of this should be a surprise to anyone who's hearing this because L.A. County is, I don't know, it's been this way since the springtime of last year, and I've mentioned it before even on this particular podcast, but I only reiterate it because 2020 has not only been the most, in, it's just the most inarguably worst year of cinema on record, it might be the year where this city becomes a landfill of empty cinemas. If watching movies in a movie theater becomes a pastime, like something that we tend to talk about starting with the phrase once upon a time, then that reality is going to hit LA before it hits any of the rest of you. I don't want to poo-poo on this city because I do like it. But in this time, it's been the worst. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Yeah, I don't mean to end it on some negativity, but man, got to be honest about this past year. You know what I mean? I would like to give a shout out to good people at Third Wheel for being as supportive as they've been this whole time. I'd like to give a shout out to DJ Rashad on the ones and twos. What is your name, sir? Rick? Shout out to Rick. Thank you for listening. God bless you all. And I'll see you in the next episode.